Open your Bible with me. Our scripture we're using on this series, the series is called Follow Me, is Matthew chapter 4. This is where Jesus, one of the accounts of where Jesus called some, several of his disciples. And just verses 18 through 22. And we just, our starting point. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, later called Peter, and Andrew's brother, casting net into the sea, and they were fishermen. And he, Jesus, said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat with Zebedee, their father, and mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father, and they followed him. Immediately they followed him. We've looked at another account in the Gospel of Mark where where Jesus approaches a tax collector, Levi. And the same thing. He just looks at him and says, You, come, follow me. And it says he immediately left everything, the money sitting there, and left everything and immediately just followed him. And we've begun to look at why. Why would these men, grown men, hardened men, fishermen, these are not, you know, just namby-pamby, these are fishermen. And then you've got a tax collector, they leave everything and walk off from their father in one case and just follow him because he invited them to follow him. And we talked about, we're looking at this not just from an historical point of view of why did that happen, but from our point of view, because Jesus has called us to do the same thing. And we're realizing that we can learn something about this call and the response to this call by watching and seeing how they responded, why they responded, and then we'll look later on at how they responded. That's why this story is in here. It's not in here just to tell us something that happened over 2,000 years ago. It's in here as an example for us to encourage us and to guide us and to strengthen us. So we've looked at this, at this amazing, simple incident, and we've said, we started by looking, what is it? Jesus just said, follow me. So simple, and yet it's so difficult because it's so simple. He didn't ask them to join something. He didn't ask them to join his team, join some movement. He didn't ask them to become religious or change religions. He didn't ask them to join a church. He didn't ask them. He just asked them to follow, and he actually didn't ask them. He commanded them to follow him. And then we looked at the him because he called them into a personal relationship with him. And he didn't tell them where they were going. He didn't tell them what it was going to involve. He started out by inviting them, calling them, and and their response, and until they responded, he didn't tell them anything else. We're going to look down the road about the other things he began to tell them, but it doesn't he only told those that answered the call what that call meant. And so we looked at the simplicity of just following. It's so simple. It takes all the thinking and all the effort out of it. You don't have to know where you're going. You don't have to figure anything out. It's just learn how to follow Him. And then we began to look several weeks ago as who is this Him that has called us to follow Him and, and why could they respond as, as obediently as they did. And the first thing we saw is the one who called them to follow Him is the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One. He is the Son of God with all the glory and majesty which He'd set aside, but it's still His, and all the authority that is in the second person of the Godhead by whom everything was created. He's the one that said, follow me. And then we looked last time at 
But that can sound very threatening, scary. God Almighty has commanded me to follow him. But then we looked at who he is. He loves them more than he more than they could love themselves. For, uh, John 13, 1 says he loved them to the limit, to the maximum, and he proved that love by giving up his life for them. We saw that he cared about them more than he cared, they cared about themselves. So that everything he did for them, and even in the call that he had to call them, it was for their benefit, not for our, his benefit. And so we looked at that the last time. Today we're going to look at another aspect of this because it's so important as we begin this journey together to establish the foundation of who it is that's calling us. And if you've been in church for more than a couple of months, you already know the information. So if I were to pass out little slips of paper then give you a pop quiz, you'd all pass it. Because we all know the one who called us is Jesus. The one who called, Jesus is the Son of God. We all know that He loves us, that He gave His life for us. We all know all those things. But if, do we really know it? Because when you really know it, you'll leave all and follow Him. The reason we're holding back is we really don't know who it is that's calling us. And that's why we're spending time looking at and giving the Holy Spirit the opportunity to take these God-breathed words and to touch our hearts just as He touched their hearts and drew them to Him. It was the anointing on Him that came out of His heart and His nature and His character that drew them. They didn't understand it. They just knew there was something about Him that caused them to leave all. Now He was standing in front of them in a living person, flesh and blood. He's not standing in front of us this morning in flesh and blood, but He's here by His Spirit to do the same things in our lives. And I want to keep going over that because I want you to understand the goal of today is that our hearts be touched by who this man is that's the Son of God that's calling us. Who He is. Who He is. So to do that, let's go to John chapter 4. This is one of my favorite stories in the Gospels. There's just so, so much about this. And I know why. John chapter 4 and we'll pick up in, in, in verse 7. This is a story of Jesus on the, between going from Galilee to Samaria or to, 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 to Jerusalem or the other way around, I forget which it is. He had to pass through Samaria. And I don't have time, I want to take the time to go through the whole background of the story. But he has an encounter with a woman at, at a well, because back then they didn't have running water in their houses. They came out early every morning, the women did, to draw water from this well that they were going to need for that day. Now, we're not going to have time to go through the whole story, but there's a reason why she's coming at noon and the rest of them came in the morning. Because this woman's had five husbands. She didn't have a good track record with relationships with men, and the one she's living with isn't her husband. So she had a reputation. And you know, well, I won't go there. So she didn't want to be around the women of that town and what they might say about her and say to each other about her. So she came out alone. But, oh, isn't it so wonderful that when we find ourselves alone and rejected by others, who comes to meet us at that place of desperation? Who comes out of all of eternity and steps out of eternity to this woman? We don't know her name. She was a mess. Her life was falling apart. She was hurt by relationships. And the Son of God steps out of eternity and comes and meets her where she is. 
And she had no idea when she got up that morning. She had no idea when she followed a regular routine that day who she was going to meet. And so she comes up with her water pot. And we'll pick up in verse 7. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and she said, Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to buy food. And the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? You have to understand the background here is this was a racial issue in those days. Because the Samaritans were half-breeds. They were half-Jew and half-Gentile. And to a Jew, that was enough to exclude you. Because you start hating people and rejecting them, they're going to hate you back and reject you back. So Samaritans did not talk to Jews, and Jews did not talk to Samaritans. On top of that, men in those days could not talk directly to a woman that was not accompanied by a man. So it was improper for a man to talk to a woman without somebody with her, and it was unheard of that a Jew would speak to a Samaritan. And Jesus crosses all lines of race. He crosses all lines of gender. He crosses every wall and impediment that man has tried to put up between him and and, and, and us and between each other. And he comes to break down those walls. That's what Ephesians tells us. And he answered in verse 10 and said, If you know, listen carefully, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now to understand the impact of what this story is intended to do, you have to understand, because we're sitting in in a reasonably (laughs) air-conditioned room this morning. I know it's still warm, but that's because it's so warm outside. But compared to where they were, this is ice cold. They're in Palestine. They're in the middle of the day. The sun's been beating down on them. And the greatest need we have, but the greatest need especially when you're in that kind of arid, hot climate, is water. And so Jesus has this strange request. Give me a drink of water. And, 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 And she says... Are you, she objects. How would you ask me for water? And he says, if you knew who was asking you, you would ask of me and I could give you living water. Now let's talk about living water for a minute. Because water, the Bible often, and Jesus often, to get a spiritual principle across would use some natural principle that we all could relate to and understand. That's what his parables were all about. We all know what water means to us. Now, if you've got plenty of it, you're walk, carrying around with one of those water containers, you know, but if you haven't had water for a while, if you forget to bring water to the picnic and God doesn't provide it from heaven, you know, you'll come to a point where you're thirsty. And when you get thirsty enough, you'll become so desperate, you'll do almost anything to satisfy that thirst. People that have been uh, uh, shipwrecked at sea. Stories out of World War II of sailors that were shipwrecked at sea. And some of the older ones. When when, when they ran out of fresh water, the temptation is to drink the salt water because they're dying of thirst and they're full of water around them. But of course, salt water will drive you crazy and eventually kill you if you drink it. But But they would drink it 
anyway, knowing because the drive for thirst when you have not when your body needs water, it's what you that in air and water are what you need every day. Food you can get by without. I should have heard a lot of amens on that. <laughs> Food you can get by without. But water is absolutely, but it also is more than something necessary for life. It describes a thirst, something that drives us, that we desire, that we need, and, we, and there's a drive in us to quench that thirst. And so when Jesus says to her, if you knew who it was that asked you for a drink, you would ask of him, and he would give you a different kind of water. This is a water that would satisfy every need and longing of your soul. This is a water that's necessary for the true life, which is the spiritual life that is within you. If you knew who it was, you would ask of Him, and He would give you living water. And the woman said to Him, Sir, she's still thinking in natural terms, you have nothing to draw with, the well's deep, how are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him, it shall become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. So it will become the source of water a source of living water, a source of refreshment, of, in, of, of strength, of life flowing out of you as, as eternal life. The word everlasting life is a little misleading because it sounds in terms of time. But the word actually there is zoe, Z-O-E, which means an eternal refers to life at a different level, not a time period. So we often think of everlasting life as forever. Well, you're going to live forever anyway. Your body won't, but you'll live forever somewhere, either in heaven or hell. But he, everlasting life refers to life at the level God lives it, because God is absolutely fully alive. We aren't when we live in this natural life. But the spirit life, have you ever had the experience you're so dead tired and you come to church on Wednesday night? You do come to church on Wednesday night, don't you? And you drag yourself in here, and by the time you leave, you're alive again. I had somebody say that to me the other day. So you're alive. Why? Not because you had to sleep, I hope. <laughs> but because you, the spirit inside of you, you got in touch with the spiritual life on the inside of you, and that's the source of real life. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's offering her here. The one who called the disciples and us, listen carefully, this is the message today, is the only one who can satisfy the deep, real needs of your soul and of your life. So the other reason why the disciples followed him and continue to follow him is from him they got a taste of what this real life was like. And we're going to see in a little while, they got hooked on it. There are some things that's okay to get addicted to, and God is one of them. You can get addicted to Him, and you can have as much as you want. You can get addicted to the Holy Spirit, and you can drink. You can get addicted to this water. God wants you addicted to it, to drink of it and need it every day. Get your fix every morning when you get up, except realize He's always there. Let's go to, let's understand this. Go back, go with me to Genesis chapter 1. Each of these sections 
could be a series in and of themselves. So we have to be careful to not get sidetracked here. So God, the one who called them, is the only one who can satisfy this need. Well, where does this need come from? The God who created man created us to be in a relationship with Him so that He alone was the source of our life. So we're going to go back and look at God's creation. How, if you want to know God's will, there's three places in the Bible to look at it. God's will without man messing it up. And that's in the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, when God did exactly what He wanted to do, the way He wanted to do it. The second place to look is when God came to the earth in flesh, in Jesus. Jesus is the God in the flesh. And if you want to know what God's like, look at what Jesus did when He was in the flesh and what He said and what He did for people. And then the third place to look is when God recreates everything in the end. Everything else in between, man's messed up somehow. And we've gotten our hands in and the devil has done it through us. So in the beginning we see when God created... Well, let's go and look at Genesis 1.27. In the beginning. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God He created them male and female. We're not going to go there this morning. But God created them in His image male and female He created them. Man is the only creation God made that He made in His image. He didn't make the plants in His image. He didn't make the, 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 the animals in His image. He didn't make Molly in His image. He didn't make anything in His image. He only made man in His image. That means God has put man on a different plane with everything else He created. And the reason He made man in His image is God made man so that He could have an intimate relationship with Him. Is God so hard up for friends He's got to make His own friends? No, obviously not. But God is so... He he is love. He is so full of this love. He has to have someone to pour this love out on because He cannot contain it. See, this kind of love you can't hold within yourself. It has to be given away. And so God chose to create beings in His image so that He could walk in this intimate relationship with Him. And the picture we get in chapter 3 is that God walked with them in the cool of the day and just talked with them openly. There was nothing between them. He could see them face to face and they could see Him face to face. There was nothing restricting them. And they got their life from just being with Him. They got their life every day from walking with Him and talking with Him and listening with Him and loving Him back and honoring Him and worshiping Him. And He poured out all of His goodness on them. Genesis 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of this life, of his life. And man became a living being. God breathed, took his own breath, his own life, and he breathed it into this man and this woman. He took his life and breathed it into them. He didn't do that into the animals. He didn't do that into the plants. He just created them with words, but He took His own breath, His own life, and breathed it into them. God knew that the greatest blessing 
God, God created them so that they would receive their life every day only from Him. That they would live on Him. He knew that the greatest life and blessings was only coming from this relationship. Now let's look at verse 8. Let's look at some, learn something about God here. Now He's already created everything else. He's got the animals created. He's got the plants created. But God's going to do something special for them. Then the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. The word Eden means place of overwhelming delight. And there He put the man whom He had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree to grow, look at this, that was pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life also is in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's stop there a second. So what God's done is God here, God has, has, has created His man, He's already created everything else, and now He plants a very special place for them to live in. I want you to hear the heart of God. A special place that not only has everything that they need provided for there, but He's done it in a way that it's, it satisfies their, their, all their desires. It looks beautiful. It's gorgeous. It tastes good. The food tastes good. And, and everything... Man, there's no calories. Calories are under the curse of the law. No, they're not. They're in the food. And in God, he, but He wanted them to enjoy this life, the fullness of this life. He made it for them to enjoy, but, he, but there was a limitation put on. Let's go over to this verse, I think it's 15. Yeah. And the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend it and keep it. He gave him a job. And the Lord God commanded the man, Out of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And literally in the Hebrew it says, In dying you shall die. It refers to two deaths. A physical death and a spiritual death. The spiritual death was immediate. It was the separation from God, the source of life. The physical death didn't happen for another 900 years or so. Although He created every vegetation and made a special place for them, listen, He commands them to enjoy it. See, we think religion tells you God is this stick in the mud. God is this strict guy who doesn't want you to have any fun. God made this place to enjoy. He commanded them to enjoy it. Imagine being commanded to enjoy it. But, but, but this is within the place God had created because what He gave them to enjoy would not separate them from Him. It would enhance their relationship with Him. But He put a boundary in there. He said, there's a tree in there you can't eat of. And that's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At the end of this chapter it says, and they were both naked or were not ashamed. They didn't even know they had no clothes on. They were not aware of themselves at all. They were totally aware of God and not of themselves. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. There was a boundary. He wanted them to know that, that they were stewards, they could enjoy everything God provided, but they weren't the owner. He was the owner. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil that He told them was there. See, why did He put it there if they couldn't eat it? Because He wanted them to remember there was a boundary. There was something that they could not do. And so God made them stewards over everything He created, but they own nothing. And that's us today. 
And by the way, that's what the tithe is for us. The tithe is a reminder we don't own anything we have. We're the stewards of it. And when we bring the tithes into the storehouse, we're acknowledging that God is the source of everything we have, and He lets you enjoy the other 90%. But the ten, first 10% is His. Why? So that it's our boundary to remind us we own nothing. But God wants us to enjoy everything that He gives to us. He wanted them to know that their only need... They could enjoy everything that He gave them, but their only need was Him. That's going to become important to us as we go forward. Unfortunately, it doesn't end there. We go to chapter 3. Chapter 3, of course, Satan comes in, and all his goal is here is to throw this out of balance, to, to get them to look somewhere else besides God as their source of life and provision. So his method was to tempt them to become their own source of their inner need through their independent understanding of good and evil. So let's just look at quickly at this, at this interplay. Now Satan was more cunning than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So he starts to destroy by getting them simply to question God's Word. Because the question opens the door to disobedience. And the woman said, We may eat of the tree of the gardens freely, but of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, we've gone in through this before. The moment she answers him, she gives him a foothold to speak to her. And there's another question. Where's Adam? We'll see later. He's right there, but he allowed this to happen. Now look in verse 4. Look how bold he is. The serpent said to the woman, You shall surely not die. He's saying God's lied to them. For God knows the day in which you eat, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the, food, that the tree was good for food... Now look what's going on here. Remember how God, God created them to need Him only. And then He would fill every desire of their heart beyond anything they could imagine. And Satan comes in, and what he's tempting them to do is to take the, the, the fulfillment of their needs into their own hands and their own understanding. And by doing so, to separate themselves from God. This is his scheme. And look how he works here. Verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make oneself wise, she took of the fruit and ate it. She substituted her independent judgment of what was best for her from what God had said. And by doing so, she took the control of her life out of God's hand, and she thought she was putting it into her own hands, but what she didn't realize is she was putting it into Satan's hands. Because the illusion is, if you're going to be your own person, you're not, you can never be your own person. You can never be the master of your own soul. You were never built that way. You're not capable of it. Either God's the master of your soul or Satan's the master of your soul. 
And if you don't know that God's the master of your soul, perhaps the other alternative. I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven. I'm not talking about whether God loves you. I'm talking about ultimately who you're following. But I want you to understand how God made us and why Satan came at this very point. This is the whole point of his temptation. It wasn't get her to eat a fruit. It, wasn't, it was to get her and Adam along with her to choose to exercise their own, to take care of their own needs by what they saw was good and what they saw was evil. Now I hesitate to say this next thing, but it, I just, it dawned on me the other day as I was looking at the back of my laptop that the symbol for apple is an apple with a bite taken out of it. I'm not saying there's demons in your laptop. I'm not saying throw your iPhone out. I'm just saying that perhaps that's a significant symbol of man's wisdom and what he can accomplish on his own. Now, I've got an iPhone, and I've got an Apple Watch, and I've got an Apple laptop, okay, and I'm not throwing them out because I know where my wisdom comes from. But isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Okay, so this was the temptation. So look what they did, verse 7. The eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now they're self-aware. See, we think, well, self-awareness is good. In some areas it is, but not when it comes with God. We're supposed to be God-aware, Christ-aware. Too many Christians are self-aware. That's where the problem is. Because we're trying to fix ourselves. We're trying to figure out what's wrong with us and fix us and get other people to help us to fix us when the answer is to have a right relationship with the source of life Himself. I'm not saying don't go to counseling. If they're helping you to make that connection, then they're good. If they're teaching you how to do it on your own. The eyes of both of them were open, verse 7. They knew that they were naked. And look what they did. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves a covering. So they're not trying to cover their own nakedness. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. See, once man becomes self-aware, he runs away and hides from God. And then he goes on to say, we're not going to, he was afraid. And he was guilty. Man now becomes his own God. It's called humanism. Exodus 20. Let's look there quickly. So now God's, we're going forward hundreds and thousands of years, and now God's got a special people He's made for Himself. They're, they're the sons of, of Abraham. And God's brought them out of Egypt, out of a bondage. And now God's establishing something for them as they begin their walk, their journey, as they respond to His call to follow them, Him. And God spoke all these words to them. Exodus 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Anything that we build into our own life to satisfy our own needs, I'm talking about inner needs, becomes a god to us, an idol. 
An idol is not just something you've got on your dashboard that looks nice and holy. An idol is not just some physical thing that's been made in plastic or wood or carved. Idols are anything you look at that you give your heart to above God. Anything that you turn to to meet the deep inner needs of your life other than God is that place is an idol. And we all struggle with them. We'll see that as we get to the end. Anything else that we place in that place is an idol. And God says, you shall have no other gods in front of me, before me. Now the good news is, is Jesus came to restore that original relationship that God had with man. Jesus came to restore that intimate relationship. So what he's calling his disciples to is into that same kind of relationship with him that Adam and Eve had before Genesis 3 with God the Father. He's calling the man in and he's calling us into that inner relationship. So again, what we're talking about here is, is the, who is this one that's calling us? We've seen He's Lord God. We've seen He's a God that loves us more than anything that we can begin to imagine. But He, the one that's calling us, is calling us into a relationship that can only, that relationship can satisfy that deep inner thirst, that deep inner hunger, that deep inner need in our life that so many of us are not even aware we have because we've anesthetized ourselves with the things of this world that try to fill that need but can't ever do it. That's what we're looking at this morning. He came to unite us to Him as that first man was. And that union that is only through Christ, the union we can have with God now, to be restored to that union, that relationship that Adam and Eve have, can only happen now through Christ. It cannot happen on our own. It can only happen through Christ. Why? Because God was a holy God. And when they walked with Him in the garden and they saw Him face to face, they were just as holy as He was because they were made by Him, out of Him in His own image. But the moment they rebelled at all, they fell away from that. They took their lives into their own hands and that rebellion separated them from God. And now they were not holy. They knew it then. That's why they hid from His presence and tried to cover up the shame of their nakedness, of their impurity now. They knew instinctively that they did not, were not holy the way God was holy. So Jesus comes to restore that back and He walks as a holy man through the three, 33 and a half years of His life and He perfectly obeys the law and keeps the law. He, he never sins. He stands before God at the end just as holy as when He came. And then that holy man took your unholiness and my unholiness upon himself and paid the ultimate price for that so that in him we could be as righteous as he is. If any man be in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.21, if any man be in Christ, he is a, he's a new creation. That's verse 17. For he himself knew no, who knew no sin became sin for us that we who knew sin might be made the righteousness of God because we're in Him. We're going to talk about that more as we go down the road in this series. So Jesus came to restore that. So if Hebrews chapter 10. If anyone's in Christ, He's been restored... Let's put it this way. We're going to see this more clearly as we go forward. It's not that God has made you righteous on your own. 
It's not like he's waved a magic wand over you because you chose to believe in Christ and said, I'm going to wave a magic wand over you and my, my pixie dust is now going to make you righteous. No. What he did is he paid for your sin and then he invited you to be joined to him. If any man be in Christ, not belong to Christ, not join his church, not believe in him, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Because when you're in him, whatever he is, you are. So if he's holy, you're holy because you're in somebody that's holy. It's like when you come out, my my son and daughter-in-law and grandkids have a swimming pool. And when I go out to the edge of it, I'm dry. But if I jump in it, I'm now wet. And the reason I'm wet is because I'm in something that's wet. You following me? This is not heavy, okay? So I'm not wet because I'm wet in myself. I'm wet because I'm in something that's wet. So I can't take credit for the wet because the wetness doesn't come from me. It comes from the pool that I am in. If any man be in Christ, whatever he is, you are because you're in him. So now in him, let's go to Hebrews 10. I can't find it. Put it up there. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. This is the lie. This is real. Way. Which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Remember what Adam and Eve did? They pulled away out of guilt. And people today are still pulling away out of guilt, coming to church service to worship, but there's no confidence to enter into the worship because I know me. I know my failings. You know you. You know your weaknesses. You know your failings. But what qualifies you to come into His presence isn't you. It's Him you're in. And He is qualified to come into the presence of the Lord. That's why He's our high priest who has entered for us having our hearts sprinkled from an evil... That means a guilty conscience. And our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus has restored us. Those that have received Christ, He's restored us to the right to come into the presence of a holy God just as Adam and Eve did and to feed and draw our life from His presence. People that have been around for a while think, well, I'm supposed to get up and read my Bible. If you're supposed to read your Bible and that's why you're doing it, that's good. But if that's all it is and you're not getting life out of it, you're not feeding from... There's something something blocking because it's God's giving it. It's usually guilt, condemnation. And so what we tend to do when that happens is we run away from God. We stop reading our Bible. We stop talking to Him. And eventually we start moving towards the back rows. No, no offense back there, guys. And eventually we start skipping a couple of Sundays. And then we, we, we just... Because I don't feel what I used to feel. God still feels it. 
God's still here. God's still in you. God's still open His heart to you. God's arms are still open to you. But what happens is that sense of guilt and condemnation that was in Adam and Eve and that was in us before Christ is still operating in there. That's why the Bible says you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. We live in a generation that's too led by our feelings. I don't feel close to Him. So what? Get over it. We don't live by... I, Paul says we walk by our feelings and not by sight. No, he said we walk by faith and not our feelings. I've got to be careful. I can preach here. All right, John chapter 6. That's in the New Testament, John. Come on, you know it. It was there this morning. You can find it. Here we go. John chapter 6. Okay. Verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses, he was, they were beginning to question him. Because he said to them, You know, you follow me because of the, of the miracles that I do. Because he just fed them 5,000 men, let alone the women. He just fed them out of nothing, except the little boy's lunch. And he says, You're following me because of the physical food you're getting. And then they answer him, So, you know, our fathers talked about taught the man in the wilderness. Verse 32. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to them, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So now we're switching symbols from water that's needed for life to food or bread that's needed for life. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then they said to Him, Lord, give us this bread always. And he, they're still thinking of physical bread. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He didn't say, I'll give you the bread of life. He didn't say, I can show you where the bread of life is. He didn't say, if you believe in me, God will give you. He said, I am the bread of life. Now to understand the power of that statement to the Jews, back in, Gen- in, in Exodus 3, where God's telling Moses, you're called to go back and tell the children of Israel, I'm setting them free. And he says, well, who shall I say sent to me? And he says, you tell him I am that I am. The self-existent one, Yahweh. So that the Jews, that name became so holy, they would not pronounce it. So when they got upset at Jesus, the religious people, it's because He said, I am anything. To a Jew, that was like running your spiritual fingernails down a chalkboard. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and you don't believe. All that the Father gives me came from me. Verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Let's go down to... um, Verse 48. I am, 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness. What he's referring to here, we talked about this before. It was on a Wednesday night, I guess. Israel going through the wilderness when they came out of Egypt to go in the promised land, in, in a place where there was no food, it was an arid desert, God r- r- rained every morning, every evening, dew from heaven that they made into bread. God was providing for them what they needed. They complained about bread God was giving them freely. 
And God was training them, it says in Deuteronomy. God was training them to trust that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. They, God was training them to draw their life from Him. God was training them to depend on Him as their source of everything. He knew they needed physical bread, but He was training them to trust Him to provide it, not take it into their own hands. Yes, they had to work, Yes, they had to, but they, He was their source. That was He was training them. Now Jesus is taking that physical principle and putting it into a spiritual principle to all of us. Verse 49, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead. This is the bread which comes down from out of heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down of heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give you is my flesh which I shall give for the life of the world. And then they began to quarrel about this and he begins to say, he who eats this bread is going to live. Okay, so the principle here that Jesus is saying them is that he is the only real bread. He is the source of life. He is providing his a relationship with Him will satisfy your inner need and sustain you and give your life like nothing that this world or the devil can provide for you. He's saying, I am what will satisfy your soul. I am what will satisfy your thirst. I am all you need. Other things are important, but I am the only vital thing, a living relationship with me. This is the one who called them. This is the one who stood before Peter and, 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 and Andrew, before James and John, and said, follow me. And there was something about him. They knew that when they did it, he had something that would satisfy them to the point they left their livelihood to follow him. There was something that drew them. And we need to see because that's the thing that's drawing us. Jesus alone satisfy, can satisfy the deepest needs and hungers of our heart. In Ephesians 3, Paul says, can you put that up there? To me, who in the least of the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the uns- let's, let this thir- these words sink into you, the unsearchable riches of Christ. One of the translations says the unfathomable. That means if you throw a plumb line over the side of a boat, eventually you're going to hit the bottom. There's no bottom to the riches of a relationship with Him. There's no bottom, there's no end to the satisfaction that a relationship with Him, a real relationship with Him can bring into your soul, into your life. The unsearchable In other words, how how you search your whole life with all your heart, you're not going to come to the end of it. He goes on later on in this, we don't have it to put up there, but I've said it so many times, I've prayed it so many times. Paul goes on to pray, the Father would strengthen them by His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may be able to dwell, live in this Christ, who we have this relationship, may be able to dwell and live on the inside of us, that being rooted and grounded in love, we may come to know with all the saints, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. He's saying the limitlessness of the love of God that's been given to us in Christ Jesus. Satisfy you. And John, Jesus told that woman at the well, and if you'll come and believe in me, the source of that life will be in you. you. It's not in church every Sunday morning. It's here, but it's in you. You bring it to church. It's not in this. This is not a magic place you come into. Ooh, it feels good. You brought it in with you. 
Remember a few weeks ago, actually several months ago, when we were talking, combined our services together for the first time, and we ended up by holding hands and singing what made some of you uncomfortable, I need you to survive? You remember the change in the atmosphere in here? Suddenly the presence of God was in here, and there was a power, there was a love, there was a sweetness in here. Guess what? It didn't happen because we turned the fans on. It came here in you. You brought it. You bring it every Sunday, every time you come in here. It comes in you. What changed was instead of coming in separately and leaving separately, we were bold enough to get out of our comfort zone and actually connect with somebody else and begin to give just a little bit of this love and this life that's in us to somebody else. And the moment you begin to give it, it starts flowing and becomes in you not just a fountain, but John 7 says, rivers of living water flowing out of you with this life. Because we're living in a world, in a community, in houses, in homes, in neighborhoods that are dying of thirst and the fountain of that life, the source of what they need is in you and in me. And this is why we have to come together and not just do this by streaming online. Because we need each other to encourage each other. Getting ready to come in this morning. And I was, because we're, we're watching our, our, because our son and daughter-in-law are away, I got up this morning and went to take, they got a big dog and went to let, let him out this morning. And while I'm there, I get a text message from Pastor Sam Smucker just saying, have a great service today. Love you. Just those words, they just, not that I was discouraged, but just that lift, little lift by connecting with one another. Connecting with, it's one part of why we're here to do, is connecting, reaching, connecting, and teaching. Connecting with each other. And when you do that, you'll experience that living life. Christ is in you, waiting to come out. And we're holding them up inside, trying to get our needs satisfied from everything else. Television, food, some of them drugs, alcohol, sex, all kinds of other things. The devil offers you as a counterfeit, a substitute for the real life, the real joy, the real water, the real hunger food that can only satisfy, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Very careful, I'll preach. It's the only relation. It's the only thing that can satisfy. Only. Although the way is now open to us through Christ, almost all of us still turn to our own devices, as Eve did and Adam did. We try to find our own comfort. And I'm going to meddle here, but I'm at the top of the meddling list on this. We try to find our own comfort in food. Something bad happens, we go to the refrigerator. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm looking at me. Oh, we get, ah, I'm so tired. I need to turn on the TV. Uh, That's the one I have to deal with because it's easy to do. It can be other things. Alcohol, it can be drugs, it can be sex. Anything that we try to get for ourselves that's trying to satisfy that need, especially in a struggle, instead of Him. Instead of Him instead of turning to Him. So what I do now in the morning is I set myself. I have a routine I go through, a mental routine that I pray through to set myself of what I'm going to do that day, whatever I run into. And in in many days I go through things and never think about it. But there are times the Spirit of God is able to bring it back to me and says, remember what you said this morning, how you set yourself? Now is the time to apply it. 
And the more I do that, the more it comes back to me. And I begin to apply it. And the more I apply it and the more I begin to experience that satisfaction, the more I want to apply it and the more I see I don't need those other things. They're things I used to be so caught up in, I don't even need them anymore. I don't, they're no temptation to me anymore because they're not satisfying anymore. Because the more you sat, taste the real, the real relationship, the, the fake, the fake falls away. I've been told over and over again that this young generation is looking for something authentic. It's not in the lights. It's not in smoke that some churches have. Because when they turn the power off, that all goes away. The only authentic thing is Jesus. A living relationship with Jesus. And you get a taste of Him, you get a taste of that, you'll get hooked. I warn you, and that's a good warning. And then things gradually... See, the Bible's not full of... You know, you, when you became a Christian, I think, now, what are the ten things I've got to give up first? What happened is, I didn't want to do them anymore. Because he became so satisfying. There's an expression I've had to use several times this last week. When people get caught up in side issues, and there's so many of them out there, Pastor Sam Smith, the founder of this church, used to have, say this expression. Are you so bored with Jesus that you've got to chase after other things to satisfy the tickle that's in you? the need that's in you. I heard a pastor that I respect, a teacher. Somebody met him. He's on television, well-known, world-known. said, wow, is that really you? And he looked at me and says, if you're so impressed with me, you really don't know Jesus. I'm not all that impressive. But Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. Jesus satisfies. This Jesus is calling us to follow Him. We don't know what that's going to mean because He's not telling us yet. He just wants to know, are you willing to follow Him? But the one who's calling us to follow Him is Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, I skipped the verse. Let's go to John 6, verse 68. mentioned this the other day. I put it up there. This is after Jesus has just said, I'm the bread of life. So in order to follow me, you've got to eat my body and drink my blood. Well, that made some people very nervous, and they just, Jesus lost an entire crowd of people in one message. I've often taken heart in that, because that's never happened to me. <laughs> Say something, everybody just gets up and leaves. But they got up and just left him. And all that's left are his, 12, his disciples. And he turns to them, and he says to them, and, and I come, I'm going to hear the heart in this. Are you, are you going to go too? And Peter always spoke for the group. And, he, and Simon Peter answered and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? It almost implies they've thought about it. You alone, some of the translate, you have the words of eternal life. And also we have come to believe and to know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So Peter's saying the reason, no matter what happens no matter what the crowds do, no matter what's popular or unpopular, no matter what persecutions or pressures come, no matter what our family thinks or doesn't think, we're going to stay with you because you alone have the words of life. Only you can give that life. We've tasted it. It doesn't come from our family. It doesn't come from being accepted by the crowds. It doesn't come from my job. It doesn't come from my... It comes only... I've, we've learned it only comes from our relationship with you. 
But beyond that, we now understand who you are. You are the Christ, the Messiah that we've been waiting for. You are Him in the flesh, and you are the Son of the living God. So when everybody else leaves, this is what holds us to you. This is what motivates us to follow you no matter what it means or what it's going to cost is only you can satisfy. So we can't leave you. And you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we're going to take a moment right now to kind of let the Holy Spirit take what we've just heard and, t- and touch our hearts. There are some, maybe many here this morning that have never experienced this life-giving relationship with you. They may have been coming to church for years. They may have given their life to Christ years ago or weeks ago or months ago, but they've never experienced this relationship at this level. And we can go through the motions mentally. We can have a mental ascent and believe in who He is and, and we can say words of love. But, but Lord, we need to feel. We need to know. We need to taste. We need to taste, Lord, that living water that satisfies alone. And so I'm asking you now, Lord, praying now, Lord, as you're under shepherd here that by the Holy Spirit you would begin begin to give us a taste of that love a taste that can only come through the Holy Spirit because many are dry and they're parched and they're thirsty and don't even know it. We just got so used to being in that condition. And then we try to do it with other things that really don't satisfy. We're crying out for help today. You came to the woman at the well when she was thirsty and she wasn't even asking. We come today asking. Meet us where we are. Lord. Each one of us, personally, privately, individually. Meet us where we are, Lord, today. And help us to see those things that we've put in our lives that are substitutes for you. And not to become religious and try to put them down because they're wrong, but to begin to taste what's real and lose our appetite for what's not. Father, I come to you this morning and pray for anyone that may be here this morning that's never invited Christ into their life. They may believe in Him. They may not believe He's the Son of God. They may believe that, that, that He is real. But...